As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, you know, we're still here at uh, Jackson Hole. We're hanging on. Uh, we're not really in the actual event space, so we're just sort of hanging out in the lobby looking for people. It's like, hey, do you want to come on uh, mm-hmm. You want to come on the podcast? And we found a person. We found a person. We have the perfect guest, actually. But one thing I'm really excited, you know, we, we've, one of the things we've been talking about already is this idea that, you know, monetary policy... It's always challenging. It's always challenging when you have things like COVID, the war, et cetera. But we're also in a period in which fiscal policies, macro policies, trade policy, industrial policy, these things that we talk about on Odd Lots all the time, like how do central bankers deal with them? Absolutely. I feel like I've said this a number of times at this point, but one of the themes of this meeting seems to be how do central bankers get a better understanding of the real economy and then actually respond to it? So things like supply chain issues yes. or booming fiscal spending, mm-hmm. how does monetary policy actually react to that. And it is fairly new at a time when the unemployment rate is at multi-decade lows. We have this huge run-up in the deficit. Right. And we had, you know, people always talk about like the sort of 40-year period, but we really, you know, liberalization, globalization, et cetera. And then in the 2010s, sort of the fiscal uh, activism really taking a backseat, not much, probably not enough by many people's accounts of like demand management on the fiscal side. And now we're getting the reverse, right? Because we had the aggressive expansion. But we're also having these, in the U.S. in particular, these very aggressive domestic investment plans, right? To climate, semiconductors, it intersects with trade in a very big way, tensions with China, an mm-hmm. attempt to move supply chains, particularly around advanced tech or clean tech on U.S. shores. And so how that's going to work, how should economists think about it, how should regulators think about it, how should central bankers think about it, is sort of like a huge question that hangs over all this. Absolutely. And you're right, we do have the perfect guest. We do have the perfect guest because he's someone who is, uh, spans all of these topics. We're going to be speaking with Adam Posen, president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, also a former uh, central banker, a member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England, and someone who lately has been somewhat critical of the Biden administration and some of the domestic policy and trade choices that the administration has made. So let's have a conversation with Adam. Adam, thank you so much for uh, coming on Odd Lots. Thank you, Joe, and thank you for the generous introduction. Let's just jump right into it. You had a piece, I think, in March in foreign policy that's gotten a lot of attention. I still see people talking about it. Got uh, Adam Tooze wrote about it recently mm-hmm. in his chart book and said, like, this is this sort of, I think in his view, one of the defining critiques. We talk about this all the time. We've had people who run the CHIPS program and the IRA, et cetera. But like big picture, like what is your concern about some of the domestic policy choices being made right now? Thank you for referring to my article. And it is a concern that not just the government's getting involved in industrial policy in the sure. U.S. The U.S., as you've talked about previously, I've heard some episodes. At various times in its history, there's been public investment by the U.S. in technology. There's been more aggressive, less aggressive efforts. What I'm worried about are essentially four big things. Uh, first, so much of this has been cloaked as rescuing the industrial sector and mm. and not so subtly buying the votes of angry white 
industrial workers who feel left behind in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And I understand that's a need. I'm not sure it's going to work. Um, I'd like to think there's other ways to win an election. But I, I, the, the good news on that is several of the people who advocate this policy have now admitted, you know, even if it goes well, we're talking affecting a few towns, several hundred thousand people, which matters, but isn't going to make a thing. The second thing which I'm much more concerned about is whenever you create a government program that's about giving money to individual companies, and you combine it with this trade policy mm. that's very much, as the president keeps saying, American-made, American-built, American exports. Buy America. Buy America. Um, that you end up with creating what we used to complain about a lot in Japan and Korea and China and Europe, these national champions. So, you know, it may be that Intel or Micron, just to pick two of the names that are out there, are great companies with great tech, but you put them on the government payroll for billions of dollars and you say that we want to make sure there's an American presence in this industry, American leadership in this industry, and they can end up taking you to town. And frankly, if Trump gets back in, the corruption opportunities are horrible. Third thing is internationally. I'm hopeful that the Biden administration is realizing that they went a little too far in their anti-trade rhetoric. We can debate how much trade has been fair or unfair and how much that matters. But in the context of what you said in the lead-in, and again, I know you've spoken about this with other people, you know, the U.S. has been basically withdrawing from globalization for 20-plus years. Hmm. Uh, everyone thinks, oh, globalization did us in. But we've actually, since NAFTA, we've done almost no trade deals. We've cut way back on immigration. We take a lower amount of investment from abroad than we used to. And there's all kinds of blowback from this. There's foreign policy blowback. There's development blowback in the, in the South, the global South. There's technology races. And so this ends up with these things like these subsidies races that we're having with Europe and de facto with China now. The final point, sorry to go on so long, but the biggest thing is where I think the Biden administration is right is the U.S. had to do something constructive on climate. I mm. mean, it, it's an emergency. We weren't doing anything. And, or at least the government wasn't. And so they were trying to figure out a way. They couldn't do a, a carbon tax. They couldn't do a lot of things. This package of, of investments, as they call it, was supposed to get us some climate progress. And it is. My worry is that it's going to end up being a repeat of what happened with COVID vaccines, which is the developing world and even the relatively high-income developing world, places like Brazil or Turkey, are not going to get the access to this technology, or when we have good green technology, it's going to become a political football. Are you loyal to China? Are you loyal to the U.S.? Huh. And for saving the planet, to put it bluntly, the most important thing is when we get good new green tech, it gets used and adopted as widely as possible. And this is where I've been particularly trying to engage with the Biden administration to the extent they have interest is to say, if you're doing this whole bundle of industrial policy and trade policy and nationalist policy, how do we make sure that the technology does get down, that it's not like with COVID vaccines, that you hoard it all for yourself and you make it a political loyalty test. Do you buy from us or do you buy from them? Hmm. So many different directions yeah, we could go in already. And we're sort of talking about multiple different policies at once. So let me step back and ask a big picture question, which is, is there a good model of industrial policy in your mind? Can you sort of distinguish between bad industrial policy that potentially leads to protectionist outcomes and perverse incentives and, you know, good industrial policy that does achieve the outcomes that are intended? It's a very good question, Tracy. And I, I think the devil's not in the details, but the devil is in some basic design choices. Hmm. So one aspect is, I think it's much better to have the public investment going more into infrastructure, uh, more into public goods. And, and some people associated with the Biden administration say, well, that's that old neoliberal thing <laughs> that, that didn't work. But actually, those parts did. We just didn't spend enough. So invest in universities, invest in R&D tax credits, invest in skilled immigration, invest in infrastructure of power grid and fiber and, and EV charging stations, if that's how you want to go. The second thing is, and to be fair, the Biden administration and the Congress have done a little bit on this, 
is to make it so that even if you're trying to get production at home for, say, a good reason, like we need to have some semiconductor capacity in the U.S., Mm -hmm. manufacturing capacity in the U.S., you still leave it open that there's room for competition from abroad. So you're trying to avoid the whole corruption and international backlash, or at least reduce those aspects by saying, okay, if it turns out it's a German or a Korean or a Japanese company that has the good tech, you know, we're not going to prevent or discourage our people from buying it or discourage them from selling it here. And again, there are some loopholes like this whole leasing deal they made for electric vehicles in, in, the, in the bill that they can make. There's more things they can do. But so anyway, to me, those two things, that a lot more of the public investment goes to general good and rather than specific company capacity, and that you make sure that there is competition, including international competition, for the industrial policy goals you have. I want to go back to something you said, and I think there is a little bit of controversy when you may have said this in another context, but the idea of like manufacturing, the politics of manufacturing, the maybe the nostalgia for manufacturing this side and uh, you know, you mentioned, okay, that there are, uh, the China shock really hurt uh, certain areas of the Midwest. Is, should, is the point of uh, accelerating domestic manufacturing to maybe placate, uh, you know, several hundred thousand white men in the Midwest by reinvigorating that? But there is another school of thought and uh, that I find interesting, which is that, no, actually manufacturing is really important. Complexity is important. Ability to produce advanced goods is an important aspect of being a rich country. Do we just, is that false? Do we just have this sort of like false nostalgia for the benefits of having a manufacturing economy? I think both issues you raised, Joe, are right. And just to be clear, you know, white males have just as much right to government largesse as any other group in society. <laughs> um, and anything I've said to indicate otherwise sure. was mistaken. I mean, it, so it's, but it, it is this idea that nostalgia is the word I use, thank you, that there's Trump had a lot of this, but I think yeah. Biden has some of it. That you know there was this sort of golden era when a person without a high school diploma could make a really good living in a plant, and that plant would employ lots of people in one place, and they could depend on the job and so on. And this created a community and all this. Yeah. And and the point of calling it nostalgia is is and meaning that's a bad thing, um, is threefold. First, that really only applied to a small number of people. I mean, even at its height, you know, manufacturing share of employment in the U.S., I don't think ever got much above 30%, and that was in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And obviously, there were people, women, people of color, who didn't have equal opportunity in that space as, as other people. But anyway, so that's still a lot of people. And even now, it's 13% of employment. It's still a lot of people. But just to say it was never, ever, ever going to be the engine for everybody. Mm-hmm. The second thing is to say that there is a bias in that that underplays just how adaptable a lot of Americans white, black, female, male, everybody has been, you know, moving around the country, immigrants who come here, but people who moved in the great migrations from the South to the North for manufacturing, and then out of the North into back into the South and to the West. Um, But also communities that came back up. Um, We think about, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina is a financial center. Durham is a technology center. There's this whole area in North Carolina that, you know, several decades ago was tobacco. And Pittsburgh, everybody always cites it because it's amazing. Pittsburgh is now a health center and many other things, and it's not steel anymore. And so there is this sort of bias towards not understanding the change as part of economic life, and it's actually good. But the third thing, which is where I guess it gets a little more controversial, is for some people, and I think this was much more true of Trump and some of the people who supported him, there's this sort of idea that macho tasks of large, hot metal or (laughs) big, heavy things you can drop on your foot is just somehow more worthy. The allure of welding. Yeah. Well, and you know, and Tracy, as people point out, it's, you you don't make fun of people for that. That's fine. So for some people, that's a real calling and they really want to do it. But the idea that 
every son of a welder or daughter of a welder wants to be a welder and should want to be a welder and doesn't want to like maybe go into a white collar job or maybe work indoors or outdoors or whatever. It's, it's just weird. And so, sorry, Joe, your big point, which is the more important one, is can we survive if we don't have a vital manufacturing sector? Or at least advanced manufacturing. Right. And I think the answer to that is, well, we do. We just don't have as much manufacturing employment as we used to. Hmm. So if you, it's just, you look at the very basic numbers, the share of the U.S. economy in value added in manufacturing is basically unchanged or even slightly higher than it was when the manufacturing employment share was much more, which is another way of saying productivity in manufacturing has gone up enormously. We're producing more value of stuff at the higher end with fewer people. And so in a sense, we can debate that question you raise, but it's also, it's just not even a realistic question. So like, look at the semiconductors. Yes, it's true. We, we did not take into account, and I say we, I mean everybody, did not take into account just how dependent certain kinds of semiconductors were on this obviously exposed, very specific set of plants in Taiwan. But the fact is, there's a huge number of components of semiconductors, including the ones made by TSMC and the ones made by Samsung and Hynix and others, that are dependent on American technology. They're dependent on American design technology. They're dependent on American intellectual property. They're dependent on American components. And it's the, the low-end stuff the U.S. doesn't make anymore. So in theory, it's a good question, but in practice, it's not one we even have to face. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you brought up semiconductors, and they are probably the best example of this. But if if you take some of these stated goals of this new industrial policy at face value. It feels like a lot of it was sparked by things that happened during the global pandemic when it did become somewhat difficult to get critical components from the East to the West. How do you address that supply chain resiliency concern? Yeah, I, I think there's no question, Tracy, that the, from some sort of optimal planning perspective, or or if you meaning you know if the government tries to take the interests of the whole society or economy rather than an individual company or investor, we were past the point of of resilience. We had too few nodes, but it's important to recognize that didn't happen because of somebody making a stupid decision. That didn't happen because of some perverse government incentives. That happened organically. I mean, you would have things where multinational company, the CFO on an earnings call or whatever would say, and we're going to cut costs 15% next year. And somebody working in a plant four levels down says, oh my God, I got a memo. I got to cut costs 20%. Mm. And they figure out, oh, if I order this from Korea or this from Mexico, I can get it cheaper. And over time, that works. And you realize, oh, there's a whole group of companies down there in Mexico. Maybe I can do some more from them. And it just developed organically. And during COVID, we at the Peterson Institute tried to look more into this. And we discovered it really was that way. That we I'm not going to name them, but we would talk to major global manufacturing companies and say, 
we just want to do research. We just want to understand what your supply chain is. And the response we kept getting was, we don't really know. It just sort of hmm. grew up, hmm. and we're just now figuring out where it all is. So anyway, that doesn't mean it's still valid for, I don't want to do a double negative. It's still valid for the government to say, you know, in certain critical industries, the, the interests of the society, the economy, are not being taken account by all these decentralized decisions. But it's worth remembering that even if that's right, by creating resilience, what you're essentially doing is you're saying, I'm taking out a costly insurance policy. Hmm. I'm building redundant capacity. I'm buying something that's more geopolitically safe but more expensive. Because remember, there was a price reason why it was done the way it was done. There was a reason stuff was being produced in China, not Mexico. So... It may be worth it, and this is the thing I tried to argue in the past. I mean, it may be worth it to do that from a societal perspective, but we shouldn't pretend that it's going to be short-term beneficial for productivity or profits because what you're doing is you're buying insurance. You're, you're spending money against a bad outcome. The other point, just echoing something we were talking about a minute ago, is the international side. Right. The, for, as an economist – and when you talk about resilience, the issue is diversification. It's not necessarily reshoring domestic. I mean, it gets a little confused because if you decide China's a strategic rival or worse, then maybe you don't want China. but Or you may want to distinguish friends for friendshoring. But ultimately, what you care about is diversification. And so if you have one plant in the U.S. and it's hit by a, a local flood, or it's taken over by a terrorist group within the U.S., or it's corrupt the same way a corrupt company appears in a different country, and it produces substandard products, and you haven't diversified from that, you're still in trouble. Hmm. So these are the cautions I would put in. So I'm glad you brought up China, because this leads nicely into the other thing I wanted to ask you, but how much of the current industrial policy do you see as a direct response to a potential either economic or geopolitical threat from China? One thing that's true of big economic policy decisions in Washington, anywhere, uh, just as it's true of committee decisions in central banks, is your goal is to get the majority of people to say yes. They can each say yes for a completely different reason. You don't need to have a coherent one set of reasons why you say yes. Mm. You just want all the people to say yes. Right. And so we had, in a sense, the perfect storm behind this set of policies. So there were people with legitimate concerns about China, and particularly from the point of view of supply chain resilience, but also domestic security. There are people with overhyped, crazy concerns about China, uh, fearing Chinese students, I think, to an excessive degree, for example. There are people who were very concerned about resilience coming out of COVID in the way you said. There are people who were very concerned about these left-behind post-industrial communities. There were people who were, you know, you go down the list. There were so many reasons for this policy. And so, you know, so for someone like me to be arguing against it is in some way sort of silly because it's overdetermined, mm -hmm. right? There's a thousand reasons why they're doing this. When we talk about China specifically, I have a new article out in Foreign Affairs, and I argue we should be thinking to put a bumper sticker on it more in terms of suction than sanctions. Hmm. That she and the Communist Party have messed up their economy by being interventionist in, in people's faces, not just politically, in a way they hadn't been for decades. That I mean, obviously, the Communist Party, the leaders ruled China, but there was a what I called a no politics, no problem deal hmm. that you see in a lot of autocratic societies. Deng Xiaoping and idiot sunflower seeds. Exactly. I was oh. just rereading that. <laughs> Perfect. In, 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 you know in, the reference. In the bio, well, I was just rereading that part of the bio of Deng that Ezra Vogel did a few years ago. <laughs> and, and so you see this in a lot of countries. This was true even under Putin in his early days in Russia. Basically, you don't protest in the streets. You don't run for office against me. You do the occasional bribe. I'll leave you alone to pursue your livelihood, to run your small business. But now, zero COVID comes along. And everybody has to study she thought and all these other things. Yeah. And the average Chinese person is spooked. Anyway, the upshot of this is I think we need to worry less about containing China 
in the economic sphere, except for some very specific national security technologies. You can make a case. I think it's more that let she put up barriers, put up interventions in his society, let us and the other allies attract capital and people and investment out of China. Hmm. This worked against the Soviet Union. This worked against the fascists in the 30s. I'm not saying there's going to be wholesale exodus of millions of people, but you want that positive sort of suction pressure on, on Xi and the regime. And then what usually happens is, as we saw in the Soviet case and as we saw in various other places, the leader in Latin America, the leader puts up more and more restrictions and the, because he gets worried about the money and the people leaving. And he worries about the attractiveness of the alternative. And the more he and his party put up restrictions, the more the people want to leave. And I think that's the kind of dynamic we should be leaning into, if hmm. I can use that phrase. Uh, we are definitely going to have to do a history episode <laughs> just about the story of the idiot sunflower seed company and what that says about the ch- history of the Chinese economic model. But I want to continue along this line because you know, I think, I don't know, maybe like 15 years ago or pre, pre-great financial crisis, you know, when people talked about Chinese trade, like it was very much focused on like, what is the level of the UN right now? Are they are they holding it too low? And is, are they boosting? You don't really hear as much about that. Now, the story is much more, well, they're really doing a great job investing in domestic battery makers and domestic car makers. And they have this airline, uh, air, aviation company, Comac, that's going to might eat into Boeing and Airbus. And it's much less concerned about pure like they're competing us because they're too cheap and more like actually they're really getting good at certain high tech things. Is there concern that's legitimate, like maybe less about the currency level, but is there concern that we should have about, um, look, they're investing in their domestic champions. Maybe we need to respond to them. I think you've described accurately the way things have developed, Joe. Um, Colleagues of mine at the Peterson Institute, Fred Bergsten, Joe Gagnon, Morris Goldstein, Nick Lardy, 10, 15 years ago were really out there screaming with good reason, with good arguments about the Chinese government's undervaluation of the yuan. And a lot of the talk about the China shock and some of this political backlash, frankly, would have been muted if the U.S. government, both Democrat and Republican, Democratic and Republican, had listened to us and others and done something about the yuan undervaluation. Mm-hmm. But to be fair, the Chinese government leadership basically around the time of the financial crisis, 2008-9, stopped undervaluing the yuan. They at least stopped intervening actively to push down the yuan very much. So that is, in a sense, it mattered, but it was competing on cheap is different than competing on quality. Uh, You're absolutely right. And so now the issue is competing on quality. And there, I think it's less about fair, unfair than what are the risks. Um, You know, throughout history, business history, modern business history, including competition within the U.S., you know, intellectual property theft, reverse engineering, getting around people's trademarks has always been a factor. And the Chinese corporate sector probably certainly was worse on this in some ways. But I think you put your finger on it that it's more a question of investment. Now, We in the U.S. have been the envy of the world in commercial terms for decades because our investment system, for all our problems, for all what happened in 2008 and the run-up to 2008, we do a better job of financing tech than anybody else does. And the Chinese have leapfrogged over the Japanese and the Europeans to become our closest rivals in doing this. But we've also seen huge disaster for them, which they've admitted to in their semiconductor industry. They spent billions, in U.S. terms, billions, trying to develop this high-end semiconductor industry for the last several years, even before the most recent conflict. And they had ended up admitting it didn't pay off at all. And they jailed a bunch of people for corruption. And we don't know how much that was actual corruption versus just punishing poor performance. You know, so just because they throw money at stuff doesn't mean they're there. So long-winded answer to say, You're right, they've shifted from competing cheap on trying to devalue their currency to competing strategically in some industries. I still think our allocation of capital is better and higher return than theirs, but there are definitely things we should be doing to 
invest, going back to some things Tracy and I were saying a minute ago, invest in training, invest in skilled workers, invest in infrastructure, invest in protection of intellectual property, invest in standards that can help us get ahead. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can I ask Joe's question on a slightly (laughs) wider scale, which is, to what extent is the U.S. now driving deglobalization versus responding to it? Because we're talking a lot about China, but of course China isn't the only country out there that is trying to boost domestic manufacturing or invest more money in strategically important industries. It's a very troubling question, Tracy, and it's the right one, and it's what I and my colleagues have spent a lot of our last few years working on because roughly midway through Obama's second term, the consensus in Congress and in a lot of business as well as the unions already was U.S. had been played for a sucker in international economics and globalization. I think this is just fundamentally false. As I mentioned, the U.S. has actually been withdrawing from globalization rather than grappling with it for many years, arguably 20 or 25 years. And whether or not the U.S. has been withdrawing, the existence of China, and even if they behaved well, the existence of 1.4 billion people who are capable of participating in the world economy matters. Mm -hmm. It's not going to disappear, and they have a right to make a living, even if their leadership doesn't have a right to do everything they do. So... The danger, which we've seen come true over the last few years, particularly under Trump, but somewhat continued under Biden, is to scapegoat foreigners, scapegoat China, not even clear for what, given how well the U.S. economy has been doing in a lot of ways, but to just create this sense of we were cheated, we were played for a sucker, we should be the bully. To some degree, that's what Trump and and Lighthizer and others have said. And I worried that Some of the things the Biden administration said and did in the first couple of years, particularly things um, Ambassador Tai, the U.S. trade representative, has done on the trade front, is like that. Um, It echoes – I mean, they independently, Tai and others, believe this. But, you know, neoliberal trade liberalization destroyed our economy. Again, it's not clear the economy has been destroyed. Hmm. Some people have suffered, but that happens all the time, and that has to do with the fact that in – our society, we have a very miserly welfare state. And if our society would give a better welfare state, fewer people would suffer. But anyway, I am hoping that between the some feeling for reality and the foreign policy realities as well as the economic realities and just some willingness to be open to basic fairness and evidence, the Biden administration is going to stop going this direction. I don't expect them to tomorrow lift the tariffs and suddenly become free traders. We saw this in Secretary Yellen's speech a couple months ago and to a lesser degree, somewhat grudgingly, but still there in Jake Sullivan's speech. Uh, There are two big economic speeches, which I know you've discussed. What are you worried about? And by that, I mean, like, right now, you could, like, every day, there's a new factory opening. It looks pretty amazing. It's, yeah. There's a new battery factory, and you know, there's a lot of investment. And you look at some of these charts, 
the lines are still the lines are going up. Yeah. Inflation is moderated. And we're just talking short term things, yeah. but like what worries you? What's the way this goes bad? Or what are the scenarios in which, okay, we have uh yeah, all this investment does not yield what people hope. And what does that look like to you? Well, I think first point is Again, I'm hopeful people are realizing this, but it's not going to create that many jobs. I mean, in the end, we only have a finite number of skilled people for constructing these plants and working in these plants. And unless you get a lot of other policies and a lot of other things going on, you're just going to end up moving some of those people from one job to another. So that's the first disappointment. Is that the end of the world? No. Second, as I've tried to say, and building on what you and Tracy were just talking about, is I think the international repercussions become real. I think yeah. I think if the Biden administration doesn't say, okay, we've gone far enough in this direction, or the Trump people come back in and go further in this direction, you start getting retaliation. So we're already in a bad situation where there's this subsidies competition between US and Europe and China, and then to some degree, some other countries are going to try to play, but they can't compete. And so it ends up like a really bad version of Boeing Airbus, right? So yeah, it's good to have two companies producing planes. It's also not good that they both get enormous amounts of government subsidies in part because the other guy gets, the other company gets good enormous amounts. It'd be better if we basically did arms control and, and took it down and equal amounts of reducing the subsidies on both sides and made a deal to keep that from going. And that starts being real big numbers. I mean, that starts being in the tens and hundreds of billions. I mean, that's real money that could be used for other things. Third thing, mentioning what you were saying, since we're at Jackson Hole, is the inflation risk. Yeah. So Chair Powell, in his speech, was perceived as slightly hawkish, more hawkish than expected. I think he was about where I expected him to be, but a tiny bit less hawkish than he should have been. That given where our labor markets are, which is wonderful, there, there is still a risk that we could see a resumption of inflation, an acceleration of inflation, a reacceleration of inflation. And, you know, there's a lot of chatter right now on Twitter about different charts and things, but the... the we know the chart you're talking yeah, about. <laughs> yeah, but the main point is, it's not, what's important to remember is, it's not unheard of in U.S. experience, in other high-income economies experience, that you go through a disinflation, you get most of the way there, Another shock comes along, and inflation reaccelerates. The bullwhip effect in prices, to some degree, but it's also just if you're, and this is the the every, every good deed has its downside. If your labor market is like it is now, which is wonderful, which is unemployment measured below four percent, and labor force participation back up where it was before COVID for prime age workers. And you're anti-immigration, unfortunately, you get another shock, and it could just be an everyday shock. You know, gas prices go up, or suddenly because these investments in in chips production start creating much more demand than we expect, you end up with inflation sooner and sharper. And the chair Powell talked about that. The idea there's this what he calls a nonlinear Phillips curve, right? That that if you're close to a very full employment and there's a recent history of inflation. Inflation may increase faster than you'd like. So that's another risk. And that would not be good going into the election. That would not be good in the past. I was going to say, Tracy, the, the two big peaks of uh, the Grand Tetons <laughs> behind the hotel we were at, I can, every time I look out them now, I'm like, that looks like the two peaks of inflation in that chart right now. You and see so inflation I risk see, on the horizon, see, literally on the horizon. I see on the horizon that peak <laughs> in the you know in the mid-70s and the late 70s when I look out at the mountains. Okay, well, I, I'm glad this was Adam's last uh, sort of risk factor because it segs nicely into the discussion <laughs> of how monetary policy should respond to um, the sort of fiscal policy that we're talking about. And- I guess I'm trying to think how to ask this question, but you're you're an inside person at the conference. Uh, we are not. We are outside rejects, so we have to rely on you. We have to rely on you to convey. I think, I what think the term is hangers on. Oh, hangers there you go, hangers on. I say lobby people. Okay, we're lobby oh, no, people. No, we the central bankers don't get lobbied. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
what are the discussions around fiscal policy mm. in that room? Because on the one hand, it feels like, you know, the actions of 2020, the unleashing of spending, maybe made central bankers' lives easier, at least in the short term. But now it seems like they're complicating them massively, especially if you don't know what industrial policy is going to look like in the future. No, it's great that you brought it back. We are here at Jackson Hole, and Joe definitely should become a regular if he looks at the Tetons and sees <laughs> inflation charts. I mean, that's real central banker psyche. Um, look, I, I think the, the starting point has to be it is very awkward, and I've experienced this directly in the room, for central bankers to talk about fiscal policy. Because ultimately, if you're an independent central bank, which essentially all the free market countries have, the deal is politicians can complain about you, but they don't or your policies, ideally not about you, um, but they don't interfere, in part because you don't go out and lecture them on what's not your responsibility if you're a central banker. So your responsibility is monetary policy and some parts of financial stability. And that's it. You're not supposed to be lecturing on fiscal policy. And in developing countries or countries where governance is not, those are not the same thing, but where governance is not as strong, you sometimes find central bankers feel they have to talk about fiscal policy and and budgets and irresponsible policies. And it gets very awkward very quickly. Hmm. Um, so you don't want to do that if you don't have to. But as you're saying, there has been a shift towards more activist fiscal policy. And it's one thing during COVID, like you said, in 2020, you don't know what's going to happen. The world's facing a pandemic. You've seen unemployment spike. You've seen all kinds of things. And I think, frankly, Somehow, the Congress and the Trump administration and the Biden administration did largely decent policies in the emergency. I mean, maybe Secretary Mnuchin, I don't know who to credit, but they really did do basically good policies for 2020 and 2020, early 21. The issue is going forward from here. We're looking at a world where there's likely to be sustained increased public spending in all the major economies. So China, G7, including US. People are spending on industrial policy in these subsidies, wars, and investment. People should be spending on direct green investment to try to get some better traction on climate. People, unfortunately, should probably be spending more on defense, given the tensions between, given the behavior of Russia and the tensions with China. And you start adding all these up, and then all the stuff that our friends at the Peterson Foundation, which is separate but cousins of ours, so to speak, you know, about demographics and long-term sustainability issues. You know, you're seeing potentially one and a half, two, maybe even three percent average higher public spending over the next several years of GDP. Sorry, three percent of GDP. That's a big number. And no prospect that I see that the taxes are going to be raised to cover most of it. So that's a world that's very challenging for central banks. And how do you fit that in? And you say, so what was it like in the room? What was being discussed? Well, it's interesting that last year, actually, there was much more heated discussion hmm. and much more about this issue of could the Fed and others have raised sooner or more aggressively given what the fiscal policy was in the first quarter of 2021? Could they have adjusted more? Should they have adjusted more? And then if, and Gita Gopinath from the IMF raised this somewhat in her remarks last year, if there is this green transition, which includes a lot of spending, even just to adjust the economies, how should central banks react to it? I'm phrasing it all as a question because partly there are no easy answers and partly because there's no anything close to a consensus yet in the central banking community on this. There's a little bit too much of well, we can't talk about that. That's not our job. Hmm. But they're going to have to confront it. What I will say is so far this year, the discussions that I've heard are mostly about, in a sense, the questions of how this plays out into long-term interest rates hmm. and how this plays out into productivity growth. Hmm. And those are the most important things for a central bank to think about for the long term, but they don't quite capture the political economy of this difficult game. And yeah, I wish I, I knew how to, how to manage it. <laughs> Productivity. 
this this investment in domestic manufacturing, domestic technology, things like that. Do you have any hope that maybe like productivity statistics, which I think have been pretty mediocre for a while, maybe gone down? Could they reverse? Could uh, a smart public investment, uh, uh, could we see a reversal on that? The slowdown in productivity growth, which started in roughly 2004 and has been evident basically for the last 10, 15 years, is very concerning. Because the slowdown in productivity growth happened pretty simultaneously across all the high-income economies at once, it looks and smells like what we call a technology shock. So it isn't because the U.S. underinvested in this, or Europe, your Germany didn't have enough workers of that, or Japan got older faster. Since we all basically slowed down at about the same time, the same amount, it's probably something to do with what's global, which is technology. And the grim news about that is that puts you back in the world of the famous Robert Solow, the idea of what's called exogenous growth, that we don't really control it. So what I've always said is what you want to be doing is having the government buy really expensive lottery tickets. You're, you're investing in universities, you invest mm. in promising technologies, you invest in infrastructure. There's no guarantee you're going to get the next big thing, as Michael Lewis puts it at the other end, but it increases your chances. And this is like one of those good lotteries where there's only a thousand tickets, they're really expensive, but if you win, you win big. And that's the way to think of it. So then the question is, is the specific kind of spending they're doing on semiconductors and things like that the best kind of lottery ticket? I don't think so. It can't hurt, but I'm, I'd much rather have them investing in broader technologies than the specific industries. I just have one last question, but I, I don't want to forget it. You, you mentioned an unpopular comment. Not many people say, maybe we need to invest more in defense. There's that book that came out a few years, Trade Wars Are Class Wars. But do trade wars lead to hot wars? And do you worry that if we did see spiraling tit for tat, subsidy raises trade, that actually it could become more of a geopolitical story? Short answer, yes. I think the, the trade wars are class wars concept is actually a particular theory by Pettis, Pettis and, Klein. and Klein, exactly. And I have some issues with it. We don't need to go into that. We'll do a the, debate with them in D.C. Yeah, that'd be um, fun. Yeah. That'd be good. All right, we'll make if that you, happen. If you want to make it happen, that'd be lovely. But I think I think the important thing is the, the some of the Biden people, people like Pettis and Klein, have attacked the idea that sort of Tom Friedman worldview, that if we do lots of good globalization and trade, the world will become more peaceful. As with most things in social science, it's actually the reverse. It's not that if you do good things, good things will result. It's if you do bad things, good things won't result. Mm. It's sort of the Obama don't do stupid bleep <laughs> version of social science. So there's no guarantee that when we did trade liberalization that China was going to become this wonderful, peaceful, dem democratic place. There is a very high likelihood that if we have escalating barriers and sanctions and restrictions and hostilities in the economic sphere, that it will spill over and pump up hostilities in the military sphere. So you can argue quite reasonably, don't oversell the benefits of trade to peace and democracy, but you shouldn't undersell how much active economic conflict can spiral out of control and cause other geopolitical issues. Adam Posen, that was a real treat. I'm so glad we caught up with you here. That was a fantastic conversation. Really appreciate your perspective and thank you for, I can't believe it's taken us yeah. this long to have you yeah, on. Yeah, it's well, crazy. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm grateful. I, I'm what's the old line, a long time listener, uh, first time <laughs> caller. So <laughs> thank you for having me on Oddlots. We're going to have to have Carmen make a big reel every all the important <laughs> people who say they've listened. But thank you so much. And we should make that debate happen. Let's that get would be so much fun. and yeah. Adam in DC and yeah. have a conversation about trade and all this stuff. I'd love that, Let's that do it. conversation. Thank make you. Thanks, everyone. Tracy, I really enjoyed that conversation. A different perspective, a sort of uh, 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 robust defense of trade and openness and some of the 
you know, maybe ideas that aren't currently in fashion, but a reminder of why they once were. I think he brings up a lot of valid critiques or potential risks. And I am taking notes for our next interview with a Biden administration official. The other thing I thought was really interesting was when he was describing how policymakers are sort of thinking about fiscal at the moment, this idea that actually it is very awkward because by design, central banks aren't really supposed to opine yeah. on what politicians are doing fiscally. Yeah, I really enjoyed his perspective. It is interesting too, like the comparing 2022 and 2023, I really appreciate the sort of glimpse inside the vibe. One thing I appreciate is this sort of pushback against the idea that like the US economy has just been getting played for mm-hmm. all these years, right? Because that is that was sort of a key plank of Trump, which is that we were the suckers. And the reason that we couldn't be part of the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, et cetera, is like, we just keep getting screwed, right, in these trade deals. And the pushback is like, actually, the economy has been all right. And we've had our problems. But the idea that, like, we've been getting screwed by free trade. Right. And, but I think know. it's it's such – going back to politics, it is such a harder yes. story to tell that actually the U.S. has benefited enormously yeah. from this trade system than, oh, we have all these countries taking advantage of us. Well, and this is one of those things. And I think it's like the history of trade is that the benefits are very diffuse Mm. and the people who have lost out are very identifiable. That's exactly it. And this has always been an issue with trade, probably going back hundreds of years in the history of trade. And so I think he sort of identifies that well. Yeah. We have to do that debate in Washington. That'd be fun. Let's make it happen. All right. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Adam Posen. He's at Adam Posen. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin, Dashiell Bennett at Dashbot, and Sebastian Escobar under The Seabass. Follow all of the Bloomberg podcasts under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we have transcripts, a blog, and a newsletter. And I'm sure this one will be debated. Uh, In fact, I know this will be discussed because I first even came across Adam's article in the Odd Lots Discord, discord.gg slash Odd Lots. Listeners are in there talking about these things 24-7 a day. Go check it out. It's really fun. And if you enjoy Odd Lots, please leave us a positive review on your preferred podcast platform. Thanks for listening. Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.